Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And our text today will be verses 29 to 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 29. Listen to God's word. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I have fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There ends the reading of God's word. Join with me as, as I pray this morning before we walk our, ourselves through this text this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that you call it powerful, that it is able to, to change our lives, it's able to penetrate our hearts. And so we pray this morning that your word that you have given to us will work in our lives and conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that, again, that your uh, church will be built and that you will give us understanding as your Holy Spirit is, teaches us this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we know what you think ultimately motivates you for what you do, right? So if you think that a certain food is healthy for you and you're and concerned about your health, if you've had a cancer scare, maybe you would stop eating meat because you, you, you think, okay, this is going, my motive is to live a little longer. I don't want the cancer to come back. So you stop eating meat. And it motivates you because you believe that eating red meat is going to c give you cancer. Right? And so what you believe motivates your behavior. And we do this all of the time. And that's exactly what doctrine is to do for us. When we read the scripture, this isn't just a bunch of ideas that float around in the sky, but they are, it is to teach us what to think and that what we think will ultimately motivate us, right? And so we, we look in scripture and, and that is absolutely clear. Romans chapter 12, he gives us the first 11 chapters of Romans, and he gives you theology. He just gives you ideas. This is what Christ has done. This is the problem. Man is in sin. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to believe in. Gets to chapter 12, and he says, now what? This is what you need to do. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And now he starts into the practical application. Ephesians is the same thing. The first three chapters, he tells you who you are in Christ, what Christ has done for you. And in light of that, in light of who you are in Christ, chapters four to six, he says, now start behaving like you are. You're children of God, now act like children of God. And so as we come to this passage, and as we've been talking about the, the resurrection in chapter 15, it should be practical for you. 
In other words, it's not, it's not just this idea in the sky, but it should actually affect how you live. And today we will see that. We will see that as we come to this passage that, that Paul is now going to bring it down to the practical Christian life. He said, I started, we started with the resurrection and we said this chapter was primarily not about Christ's resurrection, about your resurrection and that the Corinthians had denied bodily resurrection. And so he started at the beginning of this chapter and he said, listen, this is what we all agree on. You all came to salvation through the gospel that preached the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We agree on this common ground. We understand that Jesus is, has been raised. And then he moves on and he says, but it's not just that Jesus has been raised, but the fact is you need to apply it to you because if Jesus is raised, then how can you say that you won't be raised? In other words, if Christ has already been raised and he was a man, how can you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And how can you believe in a Christianity that teaches the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and deny your own resurrection? And if there is no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised, which means what? Your preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. They're, they're, they're empty of anything of value. The apostles have just lied to us. Everything that they've written in Scripture is just a lie. And he says it's, it's just empty. It's of no value. You have been really believing in something that is, cannot save you. It's something that, that you've been thinking that, oh, guess what? All of my friends who are in Christ, I will see them again because they'll be raised. No, there will be no resurrection. Everyone who died is, is perished, will never come to life again. And he says, you are to be most pitied of all people. You have put your, you've bet on the wrong horse. You've bet on the wrong horse. And everything that you live for just makes you worthy of pity. And then we saw last week, well, actually, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of the dead. In other words, he's, he, since he's been raised, others will be raised who are in him. All, he can do that because all who are in him, just like all in Adam died, all in Christ will be made alive. He sets the order of the resurrection, and ultimately it ensures the end that we will be with God in God's kingdom, in the eternal kingdom, with him. And God will be in all and through all. Now, it's interesting because in 29, he kind, of, he kind of goes back to the same topic of the resurrection again, and he makes a right turn again. It doesn't go where you thought he would go. You think he would be done with the resurrection, but he's not. And now he wants again to make sure that you understand that the resurrection has an impact, not just on the Christian faith in this general sense of you believe something that's not true and you lived your life in a funny way, and it's been worthless, but he says, even for believers now, there's an impact on how they live. In other words, understanding that there's a resurrection should ultimately change the way that you behave. It's, a, it's very practical on your life. And so as Paul goes through this section, he gives us really 
three motives for Christian living, three things that are motivated by the fact that there's a resurrection. And in fact, you could say it the other way around. There's three things that are killed if there is no resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection, it kills these three things. He says, first of all, the resurrection should motivate Christian baptism. He says, this is, this is something that, that should be part of your life. It should motivate Christian service and it should motivate godly living. So there's a practical element to the resurrection. If you're going to be raised again, this should be motivate you in your Christian life. And so he begins here in verse 29, and he says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? In other words, we've established that Christ is raised. We've established there's a resurrection. What will we do with those who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Now, the point of this verse is very, very clear and very, very simple. Whatever baptism that's taking place here is really of no value if there's no resurrection. That's his point. Why are you baptizing people for the dead if there's no resurrection? So what does he actually mean by that? What does he mean by the, the resurrection of the dead? He says here, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So he says, back, back up the phrase, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? In other words, what's taking place? Well, the Corinthians know absolute, with absolute clarity what Paul is talking about because he's writing to them, they are there in history. They would have understood immediately what Paul is talking about. But we're not in Corinth. And so we're left with understanding the point of the verse, but not necessarily maybe understanding exactly what he's meaning. Now, if we were to simply take the text at face value and we would just read it, it's, it appears, what will those who do who are baptized for the dead, that people are being baptized in proxy. In other words, they are being baptized for people who have already died. And so Paul would be saying, why are you being baptized for the salvation of those who have already died when there's no resurrection at all it wouldn't it doesn't make any sense because if there's no resurrection this would seem to be an activity that is actually ludicrous all right now we know this there's no such thing as baptism for the dead right for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is gift of God not of works lest any man should boast John tells us that it's not of the will of the flesh nor the will of man nor, it's not of blood, but of God. Where Paul tells us, by the works of the law, no one will be saved. So there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, let alone save something, somebody else. There's nothing in Scripture that ever teaches that you have the ability to save somebody else. Every man will give an account for his own works. Every man will stand before God. No one can save someone else. Now, certainly this is a verse that the Mormons use to talk about the baptism of the dead. 
And they believe that you can actually save someone by, baptize, by, by being baptized for them after they die. In fact, uh, one commentary, uh, commentator talks about a lady who was baptized for tons of celebrities. So she decided that she would give money to the church, which the Mormons like, gave money to the church and for every baptism. And so she started with her immediate family and she was baptized for all of her friends, all of her family. And eventually she decided that she would be baptized for celebrities. And so she would go and be uh, baptized for Alexander the Great and for whatever celebrities that she saw in history so that they would all go to heaven. But the Bible's clear that, that, that baptism doesn't save. Faith saves. And belief. So is it possible that, the Corinth, that there was a group within Corinth that were baptizing by proxy? Possible. We can't find anything historically that would indicate that that was actually a practice in Corinth at that time. And in fact, it, it, it didn't really happen until the second century where they started to baptize people for the dead for salvation. But if this is the case that's, that's taking place, Paul certainly isn't endorsing it. He simply would be using it for an example, and he would be saying, why would you do that? If you guys are saying you don't believe in the dead, why are you baptizing people in their place? Others have said, well... It seems unlikely that Paul would actually use this example and, and use an example of something that's unbiblical and, and not condemn it. So others have said, well, this word for can be, can be translated in different ways. It can be because of, in, in, in the stead of. And so some have said, well, what's taking place here is there are believers who got saved, but before they could be baptized, they died, and therefore people were, are baptized in their place. And so you bapt, be baptized for them. Well, again, we know that baptism isn't necessary for salvation. We only have to look at the thief on the cross who died. He was saved on the cross while he was beside our Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, today you'll be with me, what? In paradise. He wasn't baptized. And yet he still went to paradise. And so we know that certainly being baptized for someone else doesn't help you at all and is unnecessary. Others still say, well, I think this is what it is. I think that believers that there are those who watch believers, and just like they, we see those who have fallen asleep, there are those who have seen the testimony of those who have gone before. And they have, they have died, but their testimony to those who were living at the time now gives them pause to reflect, and now they are what? They, they now say, I believe in the God of that person who died, because in, in essence, their testimony to Christ and the way that they lived and the way that they died now makes me want to choose that God or, or I, come to, I want to believe in that God and I come to faith. And so the idea would be simply we are being baptized, what? Because of the dead. In other words, their testimony now 
gives us testimony to who Jesus Christ is, of the fact that he was raised and we will be raised, and people say, I believe. Now, those are probably the three most common uh, interpretations of this passage. And so, again, I think there are at least 36 different views as to what baptism means. I was going to give you all 36, but some of them are, are unreasonable. But what we would say is this. Certainly, if, if this is talking about those who are being baptized because of the testimony of others, that this is, would be the fact that why are, you, why are you believing in a gospel for people who are dead and will never be raised again, and now you're putting your trust in it? And in essence, Paul says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, why would anybody be baptized for any reason? First of all, why you don't need to do it for obedience because you're not going to face God and you're not going to have to see him. If people are not going to be, if you're getting baptized for someone who's already dead, they're dead. They're not coming back. If you're being baptized for other believers, they're still dead. And if you're being baptized into, into a religion that believes in the resurrection and it doesn't happen, what's the point? So why would you be baptized at all? And so Paul says, there's, there's a certain motivation here. For the believer, he wants to be baptized to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's baptized because he believes in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and he believes that he will be resurrected along with the Lord Jesus Christ and that he will see him. And what would be the motivation for anybody to be baptized? If there's no resurrection, you're not going to actually give an account for it if it's disobedience, so why would you do it? And so he says... One of the motivations for believers and for people to be baptized is because they believe in the resurrection. They believe in Jesus Christ. They believe that he was raised and they believe that they will be raised. And they know that they will give an account to this God. And therefore, they, what? They, are, are, they come to faith and are baptized as a picture of death and resurrection, living for the Lord Jesus Christ and a guarantee of their future resurrection. And so he says it motivates people to be baptized because they understand that they will be raised, that they will give an account to our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins this section and he says the first reason, the first motive for Christian living is, is simply Christian baptism. Secondly, he says it's a motive for Christian service. A motive for Christian service. Look with me at verse 39. He says this, Why then, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by boasting in you, which I have in Christ, Jesus our Lord, I die daily. So Paul says, listen, if, if I am, if there is no resurrection and I'm just going to die and go into the dirt and I'm never going to face God and, and have to give an account for my life. Why would I ever go out and preach the gospel? Why would I ever stand for the things of God and go serve and to tell others about him? 
Why would I risk my life? That's just insane. Why would I go out for, for something that has of no value at all? He says, I, I, why am, he says, why are we also in danger every hour? Now, a little hyperbola here, but, but he's saying, listen, my life is in danger all the time. I go out, I share the gospel, and things don't go well. Now, just in case you think that Paul is making some stuff up, listen to Paul's life. Now tell me, who would go through this if they didn't believe that there was something more to this life than, than just this life? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I sow more. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. This is Paul's ministry life. We're pretty familiar, right? Go to town, go to synagogue, go to jail, get beaten, go to the next town. Well, here he's summing it up. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times. Can you imagine being beaten with rods 39 times? His back must have looked like hamburger, right? It, it would have been awful. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, that's with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked at night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on sea, dangers among the false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger, thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, who wants to sign up for that? Who wants to sign up for that? And Paul says, why, why would I ever do this? Why would I ever, if there's no resurrection, there's no life after death, why am I going to go around preaching a gospel to other people and go through all of this? Why would I ever put up with it? And he says, and, and he says this to them, and, and, and he kind of gives an oath here. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And he says, basically this. I swear by the fact that Jesus Christ has saved you and you are his children and there's a church in Corinth and I take joy in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in you, I swear by that that I die, die, I, die, I die daily. This is the thing that I glory in, the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done in you. And he says, by that, I affirm to you that I die daily. Now, again, he's not talking here that he literally dies every day, right? Then he would be, have to be resurrected every day. 
But the idea is I am in danger of dying every single day. Every day that I go out, every day that I, I am sharing the gospel, I am in danger. And so he says, I boast. And again, he's not boasting in himself, but he's boasting in what God has done in the Corinthians' lives. And he says, I affirm by that that I die daily. And again, he's not talking about dying to self. He's talking about literally I am in physical danger every day. And then he says this. If from human motives I have fought the wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Now you might think, well, what, is it, what does he mean? It, was Paul thrown to the lions? Was he thrown to, uh, was he fighting in, in the theater? It's possible, but probably not. He's probably using hyperbole here because, again, we have no record that Paul was ever put t- to wild beasts. But he uses it for those who oppose him. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, but I remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service is open to me and there are what? Many adversaries. <laughs> you think God's will is going to take you where it's easy? Right? He says, I- I've got a huge door, open door for effective ministry. Oh, by the way, there's many, many people opposing me. And Paul says, I have much opposition I have many who are against me, many who would do me harm. And he says, why would I do any of that? Why would I bother with it if, it's, if there's no resurrection? If this is my life, if this is all there is, and there's nothing, no life after death, and I'm not raised, why would I spend all of my life doing this? Hey, let's, I'm going to sign up for a beating. I think I'll go to another town and go to jail there. I'll let, I'll let them stone me. Who does that? And Paul says, this should be our motive as well for Christian service. The only way that you're going to go out and you're going to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ and the only way that you're going to suffer and the only way that you're going to sacrifice is if you realize that your best life is not now. According to Scripture, this is your worst life now. This is your worst life now. This is as close to hell as you will get as a believer. But he says... The only way that I will be motivated to go through this suffering is knowing that there is something more than just what, what's here right now. And this has motivated men for all history. Look at the disciples. Every single one of the disciples except for John was martyred. They were willing to give their lives to spread the gospel because they believed it to be true and they believed that they preached a resurrected Christ who was the first fruits and that they too would be raised and they would see him again. And the only way that we will be sacrificial in God's service is for us to recognize 
the ramifications of the fact that you will be raised again and you will give an account before holy God for what you have done. And so Paul says, look, the resurrection should motivate you to Christian service. It should keep you going. And it has, because otherwise, why do it? Why do it? It's just insanity. Well, next Paul says to us in no uncertain terms, not only should it affect your, motivate you to Christian service, not only should it motivate you to baptism, but he said it should motivate you to godly living. He says at the end of this verse, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. He's quoting the Old Testament here. And he says, listen, if we're not going to be raised, and this is all there is, instead of all that Christian service and all that punishment, let's just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. This is it. This is all there is. So you better get everything you can out of this life. And whatever turns your crank, whatever is the thing that you want to do, you better pursue it and you better get everything that you need. Gratify your flesh, gratify all of your desires, do whatever it is that motivates you, that your desires are, go for it. You may as well go get drunk, you may as well party, you may as well make light, you may as well do nothing because guess what, you're just going to die. You're going to have a big dirt nap when it's all done and you're finished. Right? That's it. There's nothing, there's nothing more. So far from, far from living a disciplined Christian life and far from serving others and far from being in, in obedience to Jesus Christ and living a life of, of, of obedience to Him, just do what you want. He says in verse 33, don't be deceived. Stop being deceived. Bad company correct, corrupts good morals. He said, you need to understand that bad company, and here is the word, the word that is also where we get the word homiletics from. And in essence, he's saying you're hanging around with people and you're hanging around with people who are probably teaching false doctrines to you. And the false doctrine they're teaching you is that you are, there's no resurrection. And he says the result is that because you don't believe in the resurrection and because they have convinced you of this, it corrupts your morals. In other words, a lack of believing in the resurrection causes you to have a lack of morals. And we know that the Corinthians were full of it, right? He says later on here, he says, stop sinning. Become sober-minded and you ought to stop sinning. And so he says, listen, because you have believed this, now you are in sin. And we, if we look at the Corinthians, we only have to trace this church. And believe me, this is... This is not the church that would be held up as the banner of, the, of, of, a great, of a great church where we say everything's functioning properly. But we, we started this, and what are the Corinthians doing? They're fighting over who's their favorite teacher. 
I follow Paulus, I follow Paul, right? They're all influenced by the philosophy. They want flowery speech. They want more that than content. They, the gospel is just a little too simple for them and the truths of Scripture. And so they, they, they're started on there. And then there's immorality in the church. Even the world won't put up with it. And they're, they're saying, look at us. We're so loving and we're so awesome. We're allowing incest in the church. That's okay. Even the world won't put up with that. They've got the wrong idea about marriage. We've had to instruct them about using their liberty because they're so self-centered about everything that they want to use all of their, 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 their freedoms to do whatever they want rather than what's best for everybody else. They're not interested in what the church will do. We get to them taking the Lord's Supper and what are they doing? They're coming together, they're getting drunk. There's class separation there. The, poor, the rich are eating and, and the poor are sitting there with no food. And the time that's supposed to bring unity actually is, is actually tearing the church apart. Then he has to instruct them on spiritual gifts because they all want to be showy. They all want to be up front. They all want to be seen. And Paul has to tell them, actually, your gifts were given to you for the greater good, not for your good, not to pump you up, but to build the church up. This church is not, shall we say, living as they should. And so we would say this, because they have not accepted the teaching or they have started to be influenced by those who teach that the resurrection is not taking place, they themselves are now starting to live and their morals are going down. And so Paul gives them the command, become sober-minded. It's like he's saying to them, you let's eat, let's drink. He says, it's like you're drunk, become sober-minded, but you have become drunk spiritually because you don't, there's no perception, there's no understanding. And he says, you need, you need to be thinking correctly. You need to be sober-minded. He says, as you ought. In other words, this is to be as is fitting or as just or as right. I think the New King James says, so right, righteous thinking. In other words, you actually have to stop thinking these false ideas and you need to think the truth. You need to think God's way, not the way that the false teachers have been t teaching you. And so he says, correct your thinking, because again, we said earlier, your thinking what defines what you do. What you think and what you believe will ultimately define how you behave. And he says, first of all, correct your thinking. There is a resurrection. Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. You need to get your thinking correctly, rightly, according to what God says. And then he says, and stop sinning. In other words, you have, first of all, you're sinning because your theology is wrong and you have a wrong belief about God, which you need to repent of. And then he says, now you need to start living according to the truth of God and what he says in his word. In other words, the morality that has gone to the side that has been corrupted needs to be corrected. 
And so he says, your thinking now should change your what? Your behavior. And so he says, stop sinning. And, and we listed everything that the Corinthians were doing. It's not like they had, didn't have something to choose to correct. And so we too need to be careful of our theology because wrong theology always leads to a wrong view of God and it leads to a wrong view of how we are to behave. And wrong theology always leads to sin. It cannot help it. It is, it is, it is falsehood, it is a lie, and it is against the truth of God. So he says, stop sinning. Stop sinning and keep stops stopped. Think right, keep thinking right, keep behaving correctly is what he says. And then he says this, for some have no knowledge of God. For some have no knowledge of God. Now he doesn't say all of you, he says some of you. Now, there are certainly some of those who are believers in this church who have, who have been influenced by this teaching that there is no resurrection. But I can't help but thinking when he says, for some of you have no knowledge, the, the word for knowledge here has more than, more than the idea of intellectual knowledge. It it's, has the idea of knowing the mysteries of God or mystery religions. And the idea is this. This is the same word that Peter used that for those who are unbelievers, who are in ignorance, that he's saying there are some of you within the church, those who are teaching the, that there is no resurrection, who are unbelievers. In other words, if you do not believe in the resurrection, not only of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of yourself, you can't be a believer. Because Jesus Christ said that, that he would raise them up in the last day, and you are denying what Jesus said. And he says, for some have no knowledge of God. They have never, because they have denied the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have never come to an understanding of who God is. And then he says, I speak this to your shame. He says to the church, it's a shame. You have unbelievers in your midst who are teaching that there is no resurrection of the body. And he said, this isn't something that looks good on you. It's not that you just look bad before the world. He says, you look bad before God. You should be ashamed before God. How could you allow this within the church? And how can you have this festering in the church? Tolerance of unbelief, tolerance of false theology is not a sign of Christian love. All right? It is a compromise. Love is to stand for the truth. You cannot have love without truth. And so, yes, there are going to be times where you say hard things to people. But that's because in order to love someone, there has to be truth in order for you to base it upon. Right? I can give you Kool-Aid with poison in it. Right? And I... But if, I lo if, if, if we're loving, someone will come along inside and say there's poison in the, in, in the, in the Kool-Aid, right? 
but I really, really want the Kool-Aid. Yeah, but it's going to kill you. Right? It's like the kid who wants to touch the hot stove. There's going to be times where we tell people stuff that makes them cry and yell and kick and scream. That's fine. But it's what's best for them. That's what love is. Anchored to God's truth. And so he says, I speak this to your shame. You have allowed these people to come in and influence you. And now, instead of living godly lives to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have allowed it to influence you. And now you're living in sin. And he says, this is your shame. This is your shame. And so each one of us here today should be motivated to live godly lives because there is a resurrection. Right? That's truth. The Bible says that you will be raised. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter if you deny it. Right? You can say, I don't believe in gravity. You step off the roof. What's going to happen? You're going to fall. It doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what you believe in. And the word of God is clear. God created you. He owns you. He has decided the, be, the, the beginning. He's decided the end. And he says, you will be raised again and you will stand before him. Now, primarily here, he's been talking to believers. He's been talking to Christians. You will be raised. You will be given a new body and you will be with Christ. Right? First John, we, talk, we talked about that in First John. We will be like him. Right? When he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But everyone's raised. Everyone is raised. Everyone will be given a new glorified body, and everyone will give an account before God. And everyone will have to, have to answer this question. What do you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? And how you answer that question, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, will decide your future, whether you will see him face to face and you will be in eternal fellowship with him, or you will go to hell and be in eternal torment. And the reality is it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. If God says it is true, you will stand and give an account. And so this morning we, we simply say, who do you see the Lord Jesus Christ is? If you're a believer here today, you should be just motivated. Baptism should be something that you desire if you haven't been baptized. Salvation should be something that you're looking for other, for other people. You should be motivated to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to sacrifice for him because you know that you will be raised again. And you should be purifying yourself. He who has this hope, what? Purifies himself. We should be out living godly lives. And if you're not saved here this morning, you have to look at this and say, I'm going to be raised too. I'm going to be raised too, but I'm not going to be raised to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to be raised to eternal punishment. I will give an account for my life according to God's principles, according to God's way. And regardless of what I, what I, I believe, he has the power to do what he desires. And so this morning, who will you recognize 
you will be raised. You will give an account. But the good news is that our Lord Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross to pay the price for sin. He lived a perfect life, fully God, fully man. And he lived that perfect life. He died on the cross. He faced God's wrath for sin because God is just and he must have the price for sin. Christ paid that eternally. And whoever believes in him will be saved. He's resurrected. He's coming back. And so we must put our faith in him. And if we do that, we too will have the hope of the resurrection. Instead of it being something scary, instead of it being something awful, it becomes our hope and our motivation to please him. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. And I pray that we would be those who would be motivated to be obedient to baptism, that we would be motivated to serve you and motivated to live godly lives because we know that we will be raised again and that we will see you face to face. And so we look forward to that time that we might worship you and know you perfectly. In your name, amen.